Welcome to the Dr. Y Podcast, a podcast about a variety of current scientific health and wellness topics. Today's episode, Dr. Y discusses the results of his antibody tests, strokes, and analyzes reports of children affected by COVID-19. Please enjoy and make sure to share and subscribe to our channel. Hello, this is Dr. Y. This is podcast number six. I am doing it alone because my dear friend Phoenician burned out talking about COVID-19. I do not blame him. When we talk about something which is presented as the scariest thing the humanity faced in hundreds or maybe even thousands of years, it does hurt, especially given the fact that we know that this is not true. Nevertheless, I decided to do this podcast alone because I left some of you in suspense by announcing during last podcast that I got tested for antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 virus. At this point, I'm reporting that I tested not at three, but at four different laboratories. I tested both immunoglobulin M and immunoglobulin G, and all of the tests came negative. I also did nasopharyngeal swab to look for the virus itself, which was also negative. I tested today 26 patients, including myself, which is approximately one-third of my panel, all of which tested negative for immunoglobulin G antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 virus. I was a little surprised myself because I was traveling extensively. I spent weeks at a time in Germany, Russia, Belarus, and the United Kingdom, as well as visited New York multiple times. I took at least two dozen flights from late December to late March, including long-haul flights, short-haul flights, flights within Europe, North America. I was exposed, definitely was exposed to patients who were coughing, sneezing, and suspected to have COVID-19, although none of them got tested positive. So how do we interpret the results? There are several explanations. The simplest one, that I was never exposed to infection, and therefore I don't have antibodies. The second explanation is that I did have an infection, but they did not develop antibodies. The third explanation is that I was exposed to infection. I did develop antibodies, but antibodies did not last long. There are other explanations, although. One of them is that my immune system is so strong that I was able to keep virus out. Even if I inhale it or touch my face with my hands dirty, it is entirely possible that my immune system is strong and is able to keep virus out. As a way of example, just imagine for a second that you're in a fortress and the enemy is trying to attack the fortress by breaking the wall, throwing over the wall, digging under the wall, or storming straight for the bridge. If the walls of your fortress are strong and fighters are capable, you're absolutely safe inside. We are equipped with incredibly efficient barriers. Our skin, our mucosal surfaces of the respiratory tract and GI tract, which present an obstacle for any intruder. Our natural barriers or walls in a fortress are also equipped with microbiome, which are bacteria, fungi, and viruses normally found on our skin, coexisting with us and protecting us from intruders, as well as the army of our own, which will attack intruder if it breaks a barrier. That army of our own is immune system, if intruder, in our case, 
SARS-CoV-2 virus did break the barrier, the immune system gets into the full gear. It is armed and dangerous for intruder. There is a non-specific component in our immune system which is prepared to fight anyone and anything which has broken the barrier. Then there is a specific immune response consisting of cells which recognize antigen of the virus in our example and present that antigen to the cells which produce antibody. Depending on the type of infection, one or another part of our immune system plays the leading role in fighting it. For instance, in tuberculosis, a cellular immunity leads the charge. I'm afraid that I will lose you if I continue talking about particulars of immune response, but the bottom line, I'm safe and sound. Thank you very much for rooting for me. My adventures do not end here. I'm scheduled to go to Germany this Saturday, May 14th, with one of my patients, and I'll report from there. Coincidentally, researchers from Stanford University just announced results of the study of the Major League Baseball employees in 27 locations around the United States. The results are quite interesting and also in dichotomy with most of the publications in the United States and Stanford University-owned study in Santa Clara County. The dichotomy is that employees of the Major League Baseball were found to have antibodies only in 0.7% of cases which is way lower than in Santa Clara County, where prevalence was approximately 4%, significantly lower than New York, where prevalence is apparently 20-25%. Sweden, where the prevalence of antibodies is also in around 25%. The explanation given, which makes a lot of sense, is that employees tested were mostly middle to middle upper class, though they do not interact much with players or anybody else coming to visit to see the baseball game. They are also quite observant in terms of home self-isolation. Therefore, it is not surprising that this particular group of the middle to middle upper class people do not have antibodies at this point. I think that my panel, 26 people, including myself, which got tested in the last two weeks, also fit that description. Aside from me and a couple of other patients who did travel extensively in the last few months, the majority are executives and retirees who belong to upper middle class, living in spacious houses in the very nice areas of the country. They also have access to health care and therefore are generally in better health, even if they have chronic conditions. They have doctors, including myself, who are able to assist, guide them in making sure that these chronic conditions do not get out of control. The lesson our country as a whole should learn from this debacle is that universal access to health care is exceptionally important for the public health. I am not advocating for socialism. I am not advocating for giving health care to illegal immigrants. But those who work, those who are born in this country, must have access to basic health care. We'll be so much better off. There will be so much less premature death, disability, 
that our country will be able to repay or compensate for this effort many times over. Again, I would like to make sure that you know I'm not trying to give you a political pitch. I'm not for Democrats or Republicans in that case. But I believe besides personal responsibility for healthcare, the government should provide a framework within which patients or people, to be accurate, within which people can receive basic services without delay and live healthier and longer lives. The second topic I would like to address today is titled Stroke and Strike. This is a title of my post from yesterday, May 12, which is based on a letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, written by the researchers from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, entitled Collateral Effect of COVID-19 on Stroke Evaluation in the United States. The researchers looked at 231,753 patients from 856 hospitals across the United States designated as stroke centers of excellence. Those are hospitals where patients experience strokes are usually delivered as long as they are within a physical reach. It is important to understand that when one experiences stroke, the time for intervention is critical and can save the life or prevent disability. This time frame is defined as 24-hour window within which an intervention can be made to remove the clot from the artery blocking blood supply to the brain and restore the blood flow. The bottom line, the sooner intervention occurs, the better. The diagnosis is established by clinical evaluation as well as neuroimaging. Neuroimaging includes CT scans and MRIs, which most of us have more than once in a lifetime. In this case, the imaging of the brain is crucial for determining, documenting the presence of the area in the brain with altered blood supply. This helps target intervention precisely to the area with altered blood supply. The results surprised authors and everybody else. The number of daily cases increased from the low of 500 in early July of last year to the high of almost 1,100 at the end of February of 2020, which is explained, by the way, by the adoption of software, a database, which is designed to register every patient with symptoms of stroke undergoing neuroimaging. And then it dropped back to just over 500 by the end of March of 2020. The decrease in the use of stroke imaging from the pre-pandemic era to the early pandemic era was seen across all ages, sexes, stroke severity subgroups, and occurred in most states regardless of the number of diagnosed COVID-19 cases. Does this mean that number of patients with ischemic stroke dropped almost in half in one month? Did we find panacea for stroke prevention? The answer is simple, obviously not. But why the number of patients who are undergoing neuroimaging decreased so dramatically? Authors actually do not give an explanation. The suggestion is made that less patients are seeking care while experiencing symptoms of stroke. When I was looking at this study, it really did not make sense to me. I decided to ask a few simple questions. Question number one, how many of us would stay home while experiencing stroke? Only those who are unconscious and alone, or those who would rather die 
or get disabled by stroke than COVID-19. This is a joke, by the way. How many families will calmly observe a loved one experiencing stroke without calling an ambulance? I don't think you will find many other than those who are ignorant or want patient to die. How many ambulance crews would leave patient at home when stroke is suspected? The answer is very simple, none. How many doctors who got a call from a patient or family member would advise to do nothing? None. How many emergency room doctors at the designated stroke centers would not be familiar or unwilling to follow stroke protocol? None. How many imaging departments will refuse to perform imaging for a suspected stroke? None. How many hospitals were overwhelmed by the COVID-19 patients nationwide and would not be able to accept stroke patients? Not many, even in New York. It is a common knowledge now that emergency departments nationwide experienced an, a sharp drop in volume and had to follow up medical staff, cut hours or salaries, or fire them outright. How many doctors or hospitals would refuse to submit cases into the database. I don't see any incentive for them for not reporting. So what is going on? I could only come up with few explanations. First one is that stroke patients were misdiagnosed as COVID-19. The second is that stroke patients were counted as probable COVID-19. The third is that stroke patients were intentionally misclassified as COVID-19. I would like to emphasize that I am not a conspiracist. I already stated this number of times in previous podcasts, but I also don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it is a stupidity more than conspiracy. The interpretation of the cause of disease and cause of death was totally misguided by Dr. Fauci and the crew. As you've heard on the TV as long as two months ago, they stated clearly that patient dying from a heart attack with COVID-19 is dying from COVID-19. The cause and effect are totally upside down in this case. Therefore, it is not surprising that suddenly we have less strokes. That's what this data implies. At the same time, we have a significant increase in deaths from COVID-19, both in patients who are proven to have COVID and patients who are suspected to have COVID. What's even worse that we might be observing that patients who are diagnosed, who are found to be accurate, COVID-19 might be denied neuroimaging because it is too difficult to turn around a scanner after infected patient will definitely cut on the capacity of the imaging department on its ability to perform scans if we will have to clean the room after each and single patient. I hope this is not true, but it is definitely plausible based on what I've heard from other doctors who were involved in providing care to COVID-19 patients. They had difficulty ordering even mobile x-ray for ICU patients because the equipment for x-ray should be washed, sterilized, and technicians were very reluctant to come in fear of being infected. I'm quite confident that in the coming months we'll see more articles like this describing sudden drop in myocardial infarctions, deep vein and pulmonary embolism, heart failure, other infections, because cases 
were misclassified in favor of recording COVID-19 infection. The last topic I would like to address today are cases of severe illness in children which are thought to be related to COVID-19. When I first heard it, and in particular the expression thought to be related, not related, not diagnosed as COVID-19, but thought to be related. I think everybody will agree that two statements, thought to be related versus related, are totally different. When looking into this issue in depth, I confirmed that some of these children were found to have the virus, while others did not. The next question which is on everybody's mind, is the situation unusual? Unfortunately not. We know very well that many viral infections, other infections, autoimmune diseases cause severe complications. The combination of symptoms described in this particular case thought to be resembling so-called Kawasaki disease. Kawasaki disease was first described in 1967 in Japan. Indeed, patients of Asian descent are more susceptible to the disease. The prevalence in Japan is as high as 250 per 100,000 children. By the way, most of the children affected are between 1 and 5 years old. In Caucasians, it is only 10 to 15 cases per 100,000. Therefore, it is entirely possible that this condition is Kawasaki. We need to look a little deeper into this, although. The Kawasaki disease is of unknown etiology. In other words, we do not know what causes it. The 43-year-old history of this disease failed to prove that one particular infection's agent is responsible for its development. Other triggers were described, but none were proven. Why this information suddenly becomes available at a time when the whole country and the entire world is trying to get out of lockdown? To me, the purpose is very clear. It is to scare parents, to prove to parents that sending their children to school is dangerous, that getting out of lockdown is dangerous, I cannot shake a sensation that government is trying to keep society on a short leash. Why else they would suddenly pull out of the closet the disease which is quite common, well described, but of unknown etiology and try to blame it on the virus. If you have other explanation, please tell me. In any case, I would like to reassure parents that this is a rare disease and although we do not know what causes it, and how to prevent it. It is treatable, not curable, but treatable if diagnosed early. This must not be a reason for us to stay in lockdown, to keep children out of school, to alter the entire course of our lives. By the same logic, we should not get out of the house because we can get hit by the bus. How many people will stay home if they are afraid to be hit by the bus? I don't think many. How many people will not send their children to school because they can catch flu? Not many. A healthy child belongs to school. Instead of fear-mongering, the government, the healthcare system, the physicians should make an effort to educate the public, not to scare the public. We've heard many times in the last few weeks that people who trust their government do much better, epidemic or not. In fact, Sweden is used as a model of the society where people trust the government and government trusts people. Therefore, there is much less damage from this fallout in Sweden than in many other countries. 
it is enough to tell Swedish people to stay home if they're sick and they will do it. Of course, there are economic drivers which allow them to do it, such as payment of salaries and benefits, even if they stay home, which, by the way, is a common feature of most societies around the world. Paid sick leave is extremely important because if we do not allow a person to stay home, if a person needs to go to work to make a living, if staying home will mean no pay, we will never stop an epidemic. We will never prevent the next one. I think I need to finish here because many of you will suspect that I started my own political party, but please trust me, I have no intention. I would like to stay in my profession and I'll try to continue doing what I'm doing for the rest of my life until my last breath. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for joining us for today's Dr. Y podcast. Make sure to visit our website at dry.blog and follow us on all of our social media accounts in order to stay up to date on all of the Dr. Y content. Be sure to join us for our next episode of the Dr. Y podcast coming soon.